Hello and welcome to Fundamentals, the Fidelity International series, where our in-house analysts reveal what their research is telling them about the businesses and industries you're investing in. This podcast is for investment professionals only. There we go. Thank you very much. I'm Richard Edgar, Editor-in-Chief, and I'm in a corner shop in the heart of London. You can find convenience stores on busy streets like this all over the world. And the products you can buy here, from shampoo to chocolate bars, are broadly the same, whether you're in London, Lima or Lagos. Now, take these fizzy drinks. Most of them on the, the shelf of this rather rattly fridge are made by Coca-Cola. You can get them almost anywhere, and people do. Some 1.7 billion bottles are sold every day, according to the company. Now, mind-blowing numbers like that are part of what characterise the consumer staples sector, which Coke and all of these other products around me are part of. The companies are non-cyclical, they have reliable cash flows, and traditionally they're seen by investors as safe bets. It's why they're known as defensive stocks, because even when everything else is falling apart, people still buy soap and soda. But research by our analysts has raised questions over the defensive qualities of some of these companies. Changing consumer trends, cheap debt and industry consolidation have transformed the balance sheets of some in the sector. But have investors kept up? Some of these companies are so leveraged, there's even an argument that a de-rating of their debt could upend the whole market. So what risk is there of consumer staples leaving a bad taste in investors' mouths? Are they too big to cross off the shopping list? And as markets become more uncertain, what even counts as defensive nowadays? Listen on to find out more. With me here in the studio are two of Fidelity's analysts who cover the consumer staples sector, Gita Baum, Director of Research and Senior Credit Analyst, and Heidi Raba, uh, Senior Equity Analyst. Welcome to you both. Thank you. Well, first, um, Heidi, why have these companies taken on such debts? They're huge, stable businesses. They've got regular cash flows, as I, as I was saying in the introduction. Why are they financially engineering at such a massive scale? For the most part, companies have taken on all this debt was to fund acquisitions. These were large transformational strategic acquisitions that they felt they had to do, and that is why they ended up with these high debt levels. And Gita, has it surprised you seeing these companies change their debt profile? I don't think it surprised me in the sense that we've obviously been in quite a low rate Uh, interest rate environment in in a number of countries for a number of years. So this is an opportunity for a lot of these companies as well. Perhaps the levels to which they have been willing to take leverage have surprised me. These are levels beyond which we would have historically seen in this space. Okay. And let's let's look across the spectrum of of credit. And uh, the market for triple B credit, the lowest rung of investment grade corporate debt, just before you slip into high yield or junk, that's four times the size it was before the global financial crisis. And we've heard a lot about this distortion of the credit market. And you've you've mentioned um, low rates and and cheap debt as a result. Um, But you've done something a bit different in your research. What have you found? So what we found was that indeed... For the companies that we focused on, a number of them, particularly in the triple B category, had taken on a a considerable amount of leverage. And if we looked at kind of how the rating agencies would have viewed them historically, this would be much more cuspy credit. So we don't think that a lot of the lower rated names have a lot of room to maneuver. 
and should any of these names be downgraded into high yield, um, that could have some profound market implications. Towards the higher end of the rating spectrum, I think our findings were a little bit different. For those companies, we still see a significant level of um, shareholder remuneration, both in the form of dividends and in buybacks. And we think that should the markets get more concerned about the balance sheets of those companies, we may see um, changes to those shareholder remuneration policies over time. So in other words, that, that would they would be reduced? Correct. Okay, well, um, obviously that's a segue <laughs> to you, um, Heidi. Yeah, I think maybe I should just start out by saying this was a very new type of analysis for me, and I learned a tremendous amount. I think the key insight to me was that I had not really appreciated just how lenient the credit rating agencies are with consumer staples and how important the role of qualitative factors such as scale are. We then also looked at how credit rating agencies look at the auto sector, for example, and the parameters that they apply there are very different. Less so lenient for autos? Much or? less lenient for autos. So why this tolerance then around the consumer staples? There is an argument that I think has a lot of validity, which is you know to say scale is important is true. There is a bit of diversification that and as you mentioned earlier, the anti-cyclicality, that means that these companies obviously are much more stable than car companies. But nevertheless, it was still interesting just to see how big the differences were. And how's that influenced how you think about these companies? It has made me more aware of the risks that Gita has been highlighting. But I think it's less at the company level. I think I've become more appreciative of the interconnectedness of everything. And the fact is that even if the companies that I look at are doing well and can sustain the leverage, that if there is a problem elsewhere in the credit market that leads to the credit rating agencies reconsider their policies, that there could be broad-based repercussions even for the higher quality companies. Gita, can you give me a sense of how big some of these companies are? You know, How important are they to the system? Sure. I mean, at the minute, Anheuser-Busch and Bev has about $110 billion worth of gross debt. It issues in multiple countries. It is one of the largest issuers that we cover. And and we see plenty of companies closer to the $50 billion uh, mark in the staples sector for, for gross debt. And these are meaningful names in the markets. And what would be the impact of um, a, a large company that's issuing debt in the, you know, the hundreds of billions? Uh, what would be the impact if it were downgraded? Being downgraded within investment grade, there are fewer implications. Um, but we have seen meaningful spread widening, just moving a company from the single A bucket um, down to the triple B bucket, um, you, you can get 10% um, spread widening just from that kind of move because there are investors out there in the market who want that single A rating and can't invest even in triple B. For a name that would be in the hundreds of billions of gross debt, even 50 billion of gross debt, it's very hard for me to conceive of how that would actually be 
manageable in a high yield market context. It's just such a big scale. It would dwarf all the other names in the index and you would end up with a lot of technical problems with that name. When companies are issuing that amount of debt, Gita, is that influencing how the credit agencies are looking at them? I think that the credit rating agencies are very in tune with the importance of their ratings to the overall credit markets. They don't take the idea of downgrading a company, even from single A into the triple B category, lightly. You will see when any of these companies have um, announced big strategic mergers and acquisitions that they have usually uh, discussed those acquisitions with the credit rating agencies just to understand what the implications will be. You'll often hear companies saying, we we had a discussion with the um, credit rating agencies to ensure that we remained a solid investment grade company. So I think the agencies are aware of the the importance to the markets, but equally when when things change in the markets, they are also aware that that their ratings have to be credible and and they know where bonds are trading. And they know that if if there's a big disconnect, you know if there's a big disconnect from what the rating agencies are thinking and what the markets are thinking, that one of those two is likely to move sometime in the future. To to my ears, that sounds like uh, a sort of a slight fantasy land. Uh, We all know that, you know, XYZ company perhaps ought to be downgraded. Um, We know it, say, the credit agencies. We know it, say, the credit markets. But nobody actually says it because of the ramifications that that doesn't make sense. I think that would be for a handful of very large staples companies, particularly staples companies that have done two things. One is said that they care about remaining investment grade. When a company expresses a desire to remain investment grade, I think the rating agencies in the market take it seriously. But I think the second thing is when a company still has levers to pull, if they have a, a very large dividend, for example. And, and how do you perceive that sort of action, Heidi? Um, have the equity markets priced in this sort of movement? Well, I think what is very interesting, if I look at the large the companies that I cover that have made large acquisitions, subsequently, they have been among the worst performing stocks in my coverage universe. And it is a bit difficult to disentangle the leverage aspect and the fundamental performance aspect because I think very often large acquisitions are made at a time when companies are struggling somewhat with their core business or they might not be struggling but they see risks, they see challenges and an acquisition is a good way to mask some of these challenges. Unfortunately this masking generally does not work and whatever the challenges are they become evident. So On the one hand, you have some underperformance in the core business, and then you have high leverage. So you have a combination of two things. You have rising concerns among investors as to the robustness of the earnings, and then you match that with high debt levels. But ABI here is a really interesting case study, because what they first did is they cut the dividend, and the stock did sell off very material after that, because there are a lot of investors who who have to sell a stock after it cuts its dividend. But subsequent to that, they've done two things. They firstly refinanced all their debt 
and extended their maturities so that they, for the next, I think, six to eight years, are able to repay all debt maturities from their own free cash flow. So they've become much less exposed to risks in credit markets when it comes to refinancing that debt. And the second thing that they are, that is supposed to happen quite soon is the IPO of their Asian business, which is going to raise somewhere around eight to nine billion dollars. And the plan is to use those funds to repay the debt. And since the debt refinancing um, happened in early January and this IPO was announced, the stock has been one of the best performers within European staples. And I think that is because investor concerns over debt are starting to recede. So uh, quite a complicated picture there of of how they weave their way through the different stages. If um, the credit rating agencies are only painting part of the picture, uh, what else are you looking at to, to form your views? So if a company has high debt levels, the things that I will be looking most at in addition to the credit side is, is the company doing anything they w- differently from the way they would do it in the ordinary course of business. So are they cutting costs too aggressively? You know, is that going to curtail their future growth potential? Are they underinvesting in CapEx and is that going to lead to issues in the future? And th- those issues can be s- as simple as a lack of capacity or more plant breakdowns, production problems that can lead to missed sales. It can lead to higher costs. So there are other places w- within the organization that I will be looking at even more critically than normally to make sure that they're not cutting corners. Okay. Well, what does this mean for people who are looking to buy these stocks or indeed have investments in them already? How do they think about the relative safety of the companies? We've got uh, three portfolio managers at Fidelity with um, their views on how defensive they think these companies still are or what else they're looking at to add stability to their portfolios. Have a listen. Hi, I'm Matt Siddle and I'm a fund manager with a focus on European equities. My strategy has tended to be careful around companies with high debt levels already. So the research led to no significant changes in the holdings. However, it definitely led to a greater appreciation of some of the issues and how far that had been pushed. Defensiveness of a company is is not solely determined by whether it's in a traditional defensive sector or a traditional cyclical sector. You you need to look at the business fundamentals. And just as some of the companies in traditional cyclical sectors, uh, defensive sectors, have levered up and, and that's made them less defensive, equally, there are other companies in what would be seen as traditionally cyclical sectors whose business models have moved more towards subscriptions rather than upfront sales uh, and who have strong balance sheets, etc. So some examples might be some of the professional service companies where you've got ongoing subscription products uh, to um, law firms or accountancy or, or education. Uh, some of the software companies, you know, the move from upfront licenses where you get most of the revenue in year one and then you have to find new business each year and, and the shift from that towards an annual subscription where Companies have to pay the same amount every year, whether they're in a recession or not. That also improves the defensive characteristics of some of those companies. Not all, but, but some of them definitely have become more defensive over time. Hello, I am Aneta Wynimko, and I focus on investing in global consumer companies. 
When I make my investment decisions, I think about how good is the business model and how good is the company at generating sales growth and profit growth. When I see that the, the focus of management changes into financial engineering, looking for M&A, more and more M&A, I really get worried. For a very long time, investing in the consumer space was all about thinking about the economic cycle and about how you should invest in cyclicals uh, in the early stages of the economic cycle and then in the defensives uh, in, the, in the later stages. And I think that thinking is not so valid anymore. I think today we are much more in a world where it is about what does the company do to benefit from the changes that are ongoing. And as a result, we have companies which historically have been perceived as cyclical, doing actually quite well uh, through times of turbulence because they have great innovation, because they come up with products that the consumer want. And the consumer, when they feel less sure of what's going on, they might cut on spending somewhere else, maybe in spaces that were perceived as staple before. They might give up smoking, for example, and buy a new pair of trainers. And as a result, a company that sells trainers might be less cyclical than, than company that sells tobacco. Hello, I'm Chris Atkinson. I'm a fixed income portfolio manager, uh, managing a number of funds in the global credit range. I think we could be in a situation where investors are forced to reconsider what they have historically classified as, as defensive stocks. And that goes not just for the consumer space, but also for utilities, for example, as we move towards a, an environment where more renewable generation is required in the, in, the, in the generation mix. Can you really consider utilities to be defensive? It's an open question. My preference is for sectors that have not pursued this aggressive re-leveraging. So, you know, for example, banks, while obviously a cyclical sector and a, a relatively high beta sector within the, uh, within the credit space, have pretty clean balance sheets. And obviously that is uh, as a result of the, the cleaning up that was done post-financial crisis. Yes, we could see some volatility if we enter a period of market dislocation. But in terms of the risk of impairment, which is obviously what I worry about, whether that be a default or in the case of uh, more likely an investment grade portfolio manager falling out of investment grade and being a forced seller, um, the risk from a, um, a financial perspective for me is, is lower than it is in some corporates at the moment. So, Gita, back in the studio, how is this playing out uh, in the rest of the sector? Well, I think that there were a number of high-profile leverage transactions over the last six, seven years that really pushed the envelope with the rating agencies. And so what I think has happened in the sector is that now everybody knows that maybe the previous limits of what would constitute an investment-grade rating have changed. So you see a lot of smaller companies, a lot of different companies really kind of taking their leverage levels up as well. If the big guys can do it, so can we. Exactly right. Will there ever be a downgrade, though? I mean, at what stage does this um, la-la land situation sort of, uh, when does the bubble get popped? Absolutely. We, we have seen downgrades, and we will continue to see downgrades from investment grade to high yield. 
slightly outside of Staples, but we did see um, Mattel lose its investment grade ratings and go into high yield. I think Newell Rubbermaid is still um, very cuspy for investment grade, and there's a lot of people who expect that to go down into high yield. So it does happen. It's usually in very extreme cases where you've seen significant earnings hit and the company is less able to do anything to offset the impact of those those earnings. And what has been the impact on the market then? So there we've got some real live examples. What what did the rest of the market do? How did it cope? Yeah, so in these cases, these were capital structures that are of a size that the high yield market can absolutely um, manage and, and establish. But when those companies did go into high yield, they obviously started paying significantly more on any new debt that they raised. What you also saw was that the treatment by banks and by others required them to have different levels of covenants. So you did have some pretty profound moves and spread changes when when these things have occurred. How has your view of defensiveness changed? So I think our, our analysis generally across all sectors is that balance sheets have become much more stretched in traditionally defensive sectors. And therefore, I think you have to disaggregate whether you think the business is is defensive from whether you think the balance sheet is defensive. And for me, I think I'm still working on marrying those two. I think it's about making sure that you're compensated adequately for the risk in the balance sheet without just blindly looking at the lack or the limited risk in in the business operations themselves. And Heidi, what about you? I think I have two answers to that. One is a fundamental answer and the other is the more technical one. I think fundamentally, I agree with some of the points that Aneta made earlier, which is that we're in a period of big disruption and technology is really changing the environment in which these businesses are operating. And in order for companies to continue to, de- to deliver the consistency of cash flows that are needed, they do need to adjust and evolve their business models. But that's not really a credit question. That's really a fundamental analysis question. But then on the credit side and the implications of the high leverage, it's as simplistic as if you look at how the value as the company as a whole changes. If you have a bigger slug of debt in there, then obviously the a small change in the value of the company will be magnified by many times in terms of the value of the underlying equity. And so that creates much more volatility of the underlying equity. And that in itself makes the equity less defensive than it used to be. Okay, Gita, let's let's come to you. Let's talk about another example here, Coca-Cola. Talk me through um, what, what they've done recently. So I think historically, Coca-Cola, because it has such a large amount of its operations overseas and because there was a tax implication for repatriating cash, what they have historically done is that they kept a lot of cash overseas and then they had a very, very significant amount of short-term debt in the form of commercial paper on their balance sheet. This is now reduced over time. They've termed out a lot of their debt and lengthened it. However, um, it peaked at about $20 billion uh, worth of short-term debt. Now, that was matched by overseas cash, but as a credit analyst, you don't typically like to see companies with such a large exposure to the credit markets um, in any given moment. 
Um, and also currency uh, and, fluctuations and, as well, I suppose. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm. Um, although they, they have been very sophisticated about managing those, those currency exposures. The other thing that's been interesting about Coca-Cola is that because they had this large cash pile, if you looked at the company purely on a net debt basis, it didn't look like the leverage was that high. And as equity analysts, we often do look at net debt to EBITDA. I think that is one of the really big differences we discovered. Yeah. Gita's always talking gross debt. I'm always talking net debt, and we always need to make sure we connect on that point. Mm -hmm. And if you look at that gross debt to EBITDA, the leverage levels had gone um, significantly higher over recent years. That is changing. The company has taken a more conservative view. But basically, if you added up all the dividends plus all the share buybacks plus the acquisitions that they were they were doing for a number of years, it had exceeded their free cash flow. But because they had this large cash pile, I think people were ignoring that leverage was actually increasing. Well, we're going to hear now from somebody else who has also looked through those those numbers to a degree. Aneta Vinimko, um, we heard from earlier, she's a portfolio manager with a very sceptical view of any company in the consumer space that's taking on debt. But despite this, Coca-Cola does feature in her portfolios. Um, here's what she says about that. When I look at, at the global consumer companies which I own, most of them have very strong balance sheets uh, with little debt, some of them actually have net cash, because their business mo models are strong, the management is focused on growing the sales and generating lots of cash, and they don't really need the, see the need to go and take debt. One, however, one of the companies I own is uh, Coca-Cola, and this company actually came up in the research the team has done as, as one that is quite levered. Uh, so I have done a bit of thinking um, about why the leverage is high and, and where is it going. And I had a meeting with the CFO only last month and spent most of the time talking about that. And it's a very interesting company because when you look uh, at the absolute level of debt, it is high. Uh, the company has also net cash, but it's in different markets than, than where the debt is. So it creates some uh, volatility due to, due to Forex. But when you just look at the business model of the company, it has very high EBITDA at around 35%. And I think this is sustainable and can even move up over time. Um, and the new CFO, his focus is on reducing leverage, which is music to my ears. Uh, he's focusing on improving the, the generation of cash, taking it from 60 to 90%. And he's also looking at working capital, where he thinks he can generate almost 2 billion um, just by becoming better at at running it. So, you know, when I see a company that is um, under the new management, much more focused on innovation, much more thinking how they can come up with new products and, and gener generate new, uh, new drivers of growth. And at the same time, they are telling me that they are going to take down the level of leverage. I like that and I'm happy to own the stock. Interesting view, isn't it, Gita? It is. Uh, I think one of the things to highlight about the difference between our research and maybe similar um, projects that would happen standalone in the credit markets is that credit markets tend to be incredibly backwards looking when they are thinking about leverage. They don't really think about the future. And what we know is that spread performance really requires you to take a forward view. 
By working together with our equity counterparts and really um, using both the financial models that were coming from equities as well as the financial models that were coming from fixed income, I think we were able to take much more of a forward view, not just of what the snapshot looks like of the debt of a company today, but where we thought it was going to be one, two, three years out and maybe make a little bit more a subtle distinction between companies that were already doing something about their balance sheets and those who still had not decided that this was the time to act. How do these companies perform across the two markets then, credit and equity? Gita first. So I think in the credit markets, what you typically see is a company that leverages up for um, large-scale M&A will see um, the spreads on its bonds go significantly wider in the immediate aftermath of, uh, of that M&A. What has changed in the market over the last few years is five years ago, if a company did that, you would see a, a steady progression of the, the bond spreads tightening um, from that point. What we now see is that those companies are under a much bigger um, level of scrutiny from the market, and their bonds may not perform following the M&A because people have a little bit less faith in the ability to deleverage. What we've also seen is that the companies that decide that they're going to focus on their balance sheets, um, for example, AB InBev, when when the, the stock started to perform uh, because they had decided to focus much more on their balance sheet and they cut the dividend, we also saw significant outperformance on the bond side. And this was on the back of this company being one of the worst performers in investment-grade bonds all of 2018. We've now seen a very strong rally in 2019. I think the one thing I could also mention at the time of these acquisitions, what was really interesting is when you looked at those companies, they'd taken a lot of debt, they've paid high multiples for these targets. And if you looked at the valuation right at the time of announcement of the acquisition, suddenly the acquirers on enterprise value metrics looked extremely expensive. And what then happened was that these valuations just gradually drifted down towards a more normal level. So it wasn't a, they made a big acquisition and the stock price collapsed, but it really was a one year to 18 month process of derating. And that's the long-term view that we'll have to end with, I'm afraid. We're out of time. So I'd like to thank you both for, for joining me, Gita Bell and Hadi Rawa, and thank you to our portfolio managers too, Annette Vinimko, Matt Siddle, Chris Atkinson, and thank you for listening. The producer was Seb Morton-Clark from the Fidelity Studios in London. Goodbye. This podcast is for investment professionals only and should not be relied on by private investors. This podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is intended only for the person or entities to which it is sent. It must not be reproduced or circulated to any other party without prior permission of fidelity. The value of investments can go down as well as up, so you may get back less than you invest. For other important legal notices, please see our website, professionals.fidelity.co.uk forward slash about hyphen fidelity. Past performance is not a reliable indicator of future returns. Reference to specific securities should not be construed as a recommendation to buy or sell these securities and is included for illustration purposes only.